0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone. I am uh, very excited today. I have, a, I have an amazing guest. I've been looking forward to hearing the story for, uh, for the last little while since uh, since Jim agreed to be on the podcast. I'm going to give a bit of a background on on Jim for those who don't know who he is, but I'm not going to do a huge amount of background because I think that's what the theme of today is going to be, and I'd rather uh, you hear the story from Jim himself. But at a high level, Jim is a is a an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, President CEO of Danby Products, who I'm sure most of you have one of his appliances somewhere in, in your house. Jim's invested in over 150 startups. He is uh, well known for being a, a massive advocate during uh, the Syrian refugee crisis. And was instrumental in bringing families across to Canada during that time. Amongst being an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, Jim was uh, awarded top 40 under 40. Jim, I'm going to go with that being in 2016, right? Top 40 under 40. He is also uh, Order of Ontario in 2017 Yeah, and Order of Canada in 2018, uh, amongst other accolades. So, Jim, once again, thank you very much. You know, I thought what, what would make most sense to get us started is, for those who don't know your story, why don't you get, start us off by just giving us Nicole's notes of uh, what brings you to uh, being the person you are today? and Maybe start a little earlier than most. You know, I, I know most people can read your resume, but, you know, where did you
1: grow up? Like, why are you who you are? I grew up in Woodstock, Ontario, and I went to university, the University of Waterloo, not far from home. And then I started my first business. I actually painted business when I was in high school. I don't know whether that counts as a real business, but I did have probably 20 employees or so painting houses So Woodstock. I painted a lot of the houses in Woodstock. This was before the days of college pro painters. And even after I started my business in university, for sure money, I would still paint houses for because it was an easy thing to do. And to this day, I actually hate painting. So it, like, it, it, you get too much of something, then you don't enjoy it anymore. So that's... Uh,
0: I actually... Uh... Cleaned cars in the in the summer, so that was my first uh, entrepreneurial gig before I considered myself an entrepreneur. And trust me, I hate cleaning cars. <laughs>
1: there you Go perfect. Well, I actually have a, a rule that when you leave a space or your car, leave it a little neater than you came into it in. And that way, I don't have to clean my car very much because I take in the Tim Hortons cup or the uh, the papers or whatever out of my car, and it, it's just it's just my little. Hint, if you know what I mean, and well before COVID, I would actually take a wet wipe and sort of wipe the dash and the steering wheel quickly while I was getting in, just to sort of do a little bit rather than having to take the toothbrush and the detergent and do the deep clean.
0: Does that same habit of behavior, maybe in different ways, translate to the way you view business? And I know we're going to jump around. I think both of us are good with that because that's a really interesting point. Because. When I hear you saying that, I'm like, hmm, I bet you this translates really well to building companies.
1: It does. Um, doing a little bit at a time here and there. I, I mean, the, the one rule it's just a very simple rule. Leave the room a little neater than you came in. And that way you don't end up with a big pile of stuff. Or another way I put it is do one last thing. So every day before my day is done, okay, I'm going to do one more thing. And usually, that, that, literally the one thing is two minutes. It's one minute, it's three minutes. I don't say I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to go right for two hours or something like that. It's one, literally one more thing.
0: I've noticed that a lot of successful individuals that I know are really huge believers in momentum. And those small goals, just achieving those small goals, starts the engine in the right right way and builds that momentum.
1: You're totally right. I believe in the power of momentum. Momentum definitely keeps you going, keeps you. And having success in one area gives you power in other areas. And so the one I normally work on, I'm a health guy. So I of course I'm not an athlete or anything like that, but I have health goals and that's something I can almost always do. So if I can get my workout in and say, actually, I did a did that good and hard. I don't know why, but it translates to getting some of my business things done as well. Just success in one area leads to success in another.
0: Right before this, I just did my Peloton, so I'm a, I'm a bit of a health nut myself, so totally understand that. You're in Woodstock, you're painting homes. Tell me the early parts of your career and what led you to kind of branching out on your own.
1: So uh, University of Waterloo is a co-op program. Go to school four months, work four months. So those are really the only years that I really had a job. And then in my last final year of engineering, I wanted to design circuit boards and I needed a computer, which was just starting to come around. So, but I got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two computers and I sold one, then someone else wanted one so I bought another two and then someone needed a printer and then someone needed a hard drive, someone needed some memory. So next thing you know, I'm buying and selling computer parts, hardware, software, peripherals, and at the same time, I'm doing some circuit board design. So I'm doing that and I'm running this little business, buying and selling computer parts, doing some circuit board design. And uh, I eventually built that resale business into a couple billion in sales. So that became the business I got known for was growing that business. Now, about three years on in that business, my, I outgrew the space we were in. I probably had, I'm going to say, 30 employees And half of them were involved in computer distribution, selling the the computer parts, and half of them were engineers doing circuit board design. So I split the company and sold half the business to the circuit designers. And that company became Connect Tech, and that business is still in business today. And the other half became my uh, computer distribution, which was EMJ, and it's the one that grew to be a couple of billion, but uh, it's just interesting path. So then I I grew the business to a couple of billion, and then I retired, and I was retired for five years. I moved to the state. I moved to New York, so I had a stint in the states. And why New York? Why not Silicon Valley? Because New York's closer to home. But then, by then, I was living in Guelph, and my parents lived in Guelph, and they were aging. So I thought I needed to be, you know, an hour flight as opposed to being a, an overnight flight or whatever from California. So I lived there for five years. My dad got sick, and so I came back to Guelph. And I hap- during that five-year retirement, I was doing angel investing. I was doing some advising. I was doing some board work. And one of the boards I sat on was Danby Appliances. And so when I moved back to Guelph, the CEO of Danby resigned. And Danby head office happens to be in Guelph. So I said, okay, I can go in and I can run it. Because Danby is about a $400 million company. I've done the $2 billion, So it was kind of in my wheelhouse sideways. And it was right in my backyard. So it's a 10-minute drive from home. And then I said, hey, I like operating a business. I have been not operating a business for five years. And they said, now they want me to sell the business. I say, hey, well, how much for? Because I sort of had in my mind that was going to be my next decade gig. They told me and I said, fine, I'll take it. So I bought the business. That was about five years ago. And so Danby has largely been a platform to allow me to follow some of my entrepreneurial passions.
0: I wanna go back because you make some of these really impressive and complicated things seem quite easy on the surface, which I know they're not. You kind of alluded to falling into and seeing the opportunity for college painting. Then you said you you started distributing computer parts and you saw the, the need for that. How is it that some people have this innate ability, including obviously yourself, to be able to see opportunity and others get lost in the trees? What do you think it is? Is that genetic?
1: Is it a learned behavior? Where does that come from? Well, I actually think it more has to do with a propensity for action. So I think many people have the idea, but then they wanna spend a year doing market research in the computer business. You do market research for a year, you're gonna be buying uh, 10 megabyte hard drives. Like where where are they at, right? Do two years of research. You know, I've got a a four-year-old digital camera. Do you want a four-year-old digital camera? It's one megapixel. So I think it's a propensity for action. The other entrepreneurial characteristic is I talk about my wins. You remember my wins. People think I'm genius for my wins, but I had a ton of failures along the way. So I had lots of great ideas that didn't amount to anything. And I can't even re- recite them all because even I don't remember them all. It tends to be, you know, okay, great. I tried that. It didn't work. It failed. And I didn't put too much resources into it. I, I always say fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. Or another thing I say is having a failure does not make you a failure. So you and I are better off to go and try something, do something and fail. i tell you two years from now, no one will think of us and think, oh, you're just a big failure. Unless you decide that that's going to be your big thing in life and you're going to let that be your failure. Now, we're going to go try it, get a goose egg, and then we'll go on to the next thing and be rampantly successful. And everyone says, wow, you're the geniuses. You picked it out. Well, it wasn't just that we picked that. We picked a lot of other things that didn't go.
0: You talk about propensity for action, and that's an interesting point. I've never heard it said quite that way. But I do think that there, the reason this podcast is called The Dealmaker's DNA is because I'm completely obsessed with the idea Of nature and nurture. It's something that that I bring up in every single one of my podcasts, because I think that humans do each other a disservice by telling them, you know, you could be anything you want to be. The reality is LeBron James looks like LeBron James, and I look like the way I look. And if I would have put every ounce of effort into becoming a professional basketball player, it just wasn't in the cards for me. So I think that the idea that you can be anything you want to be is just is a falsehood in my opinion. I think that, you know, it's not just pure fate. I think that there's a part of the tree where you can lie. Your nature is what dictates what branch you ultimately land up on. But I do think that there is a, a DNA component of successful entrepreneurs and it's something that I have been really, uh, you know, interested in exploring myself. I mean, I, I think that it boils down, is my opinion, and, and the reason I'm telling you my opinion is I want to hear yours, is one thing I have noticed is entrepreneurs have radical self-awareness and radical authenticity. They are amongst the most self-aware human beings I've ever, I've ever come across. And I think that that's one of the telltale signs of an entrepreneur, not the only one. Uh, I think that there's uh, tolerance to risk. I think that there is the IQ. I think there's a lot of other things. But I do think that there is a, a major nature component. What's your view on
1: that? I agree with you on nature and nurture. You can be some things that you want. You can't be everything you want because you and I are probably the same thing. I'm not going to be the winning NBA player because I would have to grow a foot. That's the first thing. You never want to tell someone to do something that's literally impossible. And your self-awareness thing, I'd not heard it said that self-awareness is an entrepreneurial characteristic. I do say that I pride myself on self-awareness. I totally pride myself on it. And I do believe that that's uh, important. And to some extent, entrepreneurs also don't care about what other people think because that's how you end up doing something which is quite different than what the world says. Because what does the world say? The world from the time you're very young says, go get a job, work for someone else. 99.9% of the population, that's what they do. They go get a job, work for someone else and they aspire to have that job. And that's the way they are. And entrepreneurs tend to not think that way. I think I was just quite lucky to paint houses successfully. And that was just pure dumb luck. My father wanted me to paint the house and he showed me how. And then one of the neighbors said, oh, listen, could you paint my house? And then someone else said, like it took two or three successes. Then next thing you know, hey, this is pretty cool. I'm going to call myself Jim's painting. And, uh, put a, a poster on someone's lawn and I'm going to go, I used to have a little form that, was, that I'd hand right on. i you know, I noticed your house needs uh, you know, painting the fence and I would do it for you for $120. And uh, you know, if you're interested, here's the number, which of course, back then there's no cell phones. That's my home number that you're calling and leaving a message for my mom. But I think it's doing things that like you, you can't have the embarrassment factor or anything. Because it would you could say, well, isn't that kind of uh, scary to go door to door and knock on people's doors asking if you paint the house. But, you know, entrepreneurs don't care.
0: Yeah, the most important job I ever had was one of my first jobs, which was a cold calling. I think it's a skill set that today is more important than my MBA. It's more important than my first few jobs. Cold calling honestly made me who I am.
1: You're totally right. And, And so one of the expressions I have is what the heck go for it anyways. Like, what's the worst case? You call me and I don't return your call. What's the worst case? You call me and I hang up on you. Like nothing's gonna happen, right? Like nothing. What's the worst case? You say, oh, can you be on my podcast? And I say, no, you're no further behind. Ask 10 people, you get one that says yes, you you, you win. So uh, I use that, what the heck, go for it anyways. And I use that in many, many cases in business. Like I've wanted to buy a business or sell a business, a division or make a big sale. And I just say, what the heck, go for it anyways because what's the worst case? You don't wanna buy 100 wine coolers. That's really the purpose of this podcast is for me to sell you 100 wine coolers. What's the worst case? You say, no, you're not gonna buy them. But what's the best case? Maybe you say yes, who knows?
0: You've invested in a lot of startups and uh, you've had a lot of experience with probably millennial entrepreneurs as well as non-millennial entrepreneurs. Are there, I mean, I have to imagine there are, but like, what are the patterns of those entrepreneurs, leaders, CEOs, that you've seen that have led to success, and more importantly, are there some that have led to failure where you see something like, "Oh, we're in trouble here"?
1: Yes, it's really a balance, partly a balance of ego. You need an entrepreneur who has enough ego to stand up and say, "No, that's not that we're not going to work in this situation," and you need an entrepreneur who has enough lack of ego to be open to feedback. And it's it's a balance because I found that it doesn't work if you have too much of the other, like. They can then go and say, well, I did what you said you, were, you told me to do and it didn't work. Well, no, I didn't want you to do it blindly and whatnot. At the same time, others don't listen at all. And, don't, and it's not just listening to me. It means listening to the world or, or whatever. I will say that good entrepreneurs handle failure and feedback well. And so I say, again, back to my failure. Having a failure does not make you a failure, and I have seen many, many businesses pivot almost completely off of what they were going to do. With a good entrepreneur, they they will change what they do, how they do it, where they go, depending on the opportunity, and at some point, they have to say, gee, what I'm doing right now isn't working the way it should work.
0: When I was younger, I used to hear this saying, which I thought was cliche, and to be honest, bullshit, where it's like, I'll take an A team with a B product over a B team with an A product. I'm like, no, it's about ideas. It's about, you know, this is the best idea. And like, now I know how untrue that is. You know, it it is all about the players. It's about the team, because like you say, they make or break.
1: Ah, but here's an interesting philosophy around team. I wish I could hire only A players. I believe our job is to hire average people. I know that's going to be offensive. Everyone's going, no, no, only hire A players because I don't think you can hire all A players. It doesn't matter what your interview process, your background check, doesn't matter what you do. You're going to hire average people. That's just the law. Average. Your job is to take average people and make them above average. How do you do that? With systems, process, coach training, mentoring, and proper slotting. So I don't know you well. But I know I could slot you in the wrong spot and you probably wouldn't do a great job. I could say, by the way, I want you to do my accounting. And you might, because you're a bright guy, struggle through and do it, but you're not going to be thrilled and you're not going to do a great job where the accountant I have just loves it when I say, oh, great, can you do another spreadsheet where you tell me it's like, oh, no, I have to pull my hair out.
0: I couldn't agree more. And and I imagine a lot of that because like you're one person and, you know, maybe you're a really good judge of character, but I, I would imagine that a lot of slotting someone into the right place comes from them feeling comfortable to give you feedback. How do you create an environment where those around you feel comfortable to come to you, you know, with that kind of candid feedback?
1: Well, the ideal culture is one which is a no zap culture. And one where you can say anything and not get zapped. I mean, you can give me an idea and I can say, that's the stupidest idea in the world. I mean, that's one way to handle. Or I can say, let me think about it. That's a good idea, blah, blah, blah. To some extent, your momentum pays. If you let people have some success, they will have more success. I'm also a big believer in servant leader. I actually want to help all of my people hit the ball out of the park. That's my job to help them hit the ball out of the park. What do they need to help them hit the ball out of the park? What tools do they need? What can I do? What can I do to help? And if I approach my position and job like that, and they approach their position like that, that's where you end up with no ego and where like, do they care? You know, there's the, the vice president of sales. If I make the sale, of course not. They get credit for my, you know, I want to help them make the sale. And am I offended that, gee, I did more work on that sale than no, of course not. It's uh, I love it.
0: Right. Julie, so you mentioned ego a couple times, and this is one that I think about a lot as well. Because, like I said, I'm I'm obsessed with nature, nurture. I'm then obsessed with authenticity, self-awareness, ego. How does one balance because, you know, you said like you want to have no ego and be you know, service to others, but then to be a good leader, someone's not going to follow someone who doesn't at least have enough ego that they think they know what they're doing. How does one balance those conflicting things as it relates to ego, especially when you listen to enough to enough people talk about it, you definitely start to hear, you know, conflicting messages around ego.
1: Well, I think there's a good part of ego and a bad part of ego. And that's what you said. The good part of ego is the confidence to go in a direction that's uncharted. That's what entrepreneurship is all about. You're doing something which other someone else hasn't done. Or alternatively, if you're going to do something that someone else has done, you are mapping your own way and trying to do it better than someone else. So that's a positive part of ego is saying, yes, this is a direction we should do. Here's what we should. And that gives people confidence to follow. The negative part of ego is, oh, I will take credit for everything and not give credit to someone else and i will not listen to anyone and one of the challenges we have as we're more successful is less and less people will give you any negative feedback and you have a problem if your ego is so big that you can't accept some feedback and it's an unfortunate side effect of of success if you look at many people who have risen to great heights and fallen when you look at it they fell when they stopped listening to anybody. Remember, one of the rules I have in business, I like to actually surround myself with at least a couple of people who are naysayers. The first 25 years in business, my brother was in my business with me. And my brother, his answer to everything is no. His answer to everything is it won't work. He, he is the next, See, I'm the optimist. I can say, oh, we're gonna make gold out of uh, out of the air. And you know, someone's gonna show me a machine that makes gold out of the air and say, oh great, let's do it. And my brother's gonna say, uh, no, it'll never work. Even if I say, well, okay, we're gonna make gold out of this, uh, out of this gold ingots. <laughs> so having people who are brave enough and of course, he's my brother, so he, he'll stand up to me. But when people are successful, people are afraid of them, and and you end up with CEO syndrome. And I have that at Danby. I have to be very, very careful because if I say the smallest of things, then people can head in a direction when that wasn't what I was saying. I was saying, should we try this? I wasn't saying we should do this. People forget the should we try. And the larger the organization, the more careful we have to be as leaders because people can think you're uh, whatever you say. Goes and you want people to logically question. say, I don't think that's the best way to market anymore. Like, uh, people aren't reading their faxes anymore.
0: I would imagine leadership is something you think a lot about. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would probably guess that you think you're a better leader today than you were when you were 25 years old. Are there some radical shifts in thinking that happened along the way that made you a better leader? Were there, were there some mistakes that you can kind of look back on and say, whoa, okay, I, I'm, I'm glad I changed this
1: or this? on my path to becoming a better leader? I'm actually a little bit of a micromanager. And at some point I realized I couldn't scale if I micromanaged too much. I can even remember the time I was coming home one night, I was sick actually, I wasn't feeling well, and I was the last one to leave, and I probably had 20 employees at that time. I was the only one with a key to the office, because I thought, so that means I need to be the first one in the morning, I need to be the last one. And I just wasn't delegating wasn't letting anybody really do anything. I was a one-person company with 20 employees, even though I was, you know, had 20 employees, still a one-person company. At that point, I said, well, wait a minute, I'm not gonna be scaled if I can do that. And that takes a lot of uh, biting your tongue because when you give up things to other people, they don't necessarily do it exactly the way I did it. And the reason I do it the way I did it is I thought that was the best way to do it. And when someone else does it, hey, wait a minute, they didn't do it. But what I learned is often the way they did it is actually better than the way I did it. But at the time, I didn't think that. One glaring example of that, I'm an engineer. And so at our sales meetings, we used to do sales quizzes. They weren't sales quizzes. They were technical quizzes. And I was selling technology products. So you know, how many megabytes is this? How many gigabytes? Is this? What's the speed of this? What's... And all the sales reps would get 8 out of 10, 80%, 90%. And then I hired this one salesman from uh, Pitney Bowes and he would get 60%. He, w- he couldn't remember the difference between a gigabyte and a megabyte. And then he'd get 40%, percent get 50%. And then his sales went up and then he'd get 50% and his sales went up. And how, how come his sales-, his sales kept going up and up and up and up and up? And the others were at level. He was relationship selling. I'm an engineer. I was feeds and speeds selling and thought, well, of course, if we know the feeds and the speeds, people are going to want the, the hot, technical thing. And yeah, he knows what the guy's kids' names are. And, and what is this? I learned it's a different selling style and it, uh, and it works. And, and that left to a lot of other things. So I would do uh, slow account switches. So I would take 30 accounts from you that weren't performing well and trade them for 30 accounts with someone else that weren't performing well. And what I found is often you could sell the ones that weren't performing for them. They could sell the ones that weren't performing for you. And that could be because they liked your personality more. When I gave you 30 new accounts that were not performing, you also had new energy on it. The other sales rep hadn't called on them much and had no energy because they hadn't gotten any orders for the last year. Where you're new, you've got new energy. And I often found it was a switch in rapport, switch in style, switch in person. You reminded someone of their father that they hated or their father that they loved. And uh, so that was a trick that I had used in business. And and you'd be amazed how well that works. you know, they just didn't like the other person, or something happened, uh, or it could be the renewed energy. If I give you a new account, you'll make five calls on them before you say, gee, I got kicked in the teeth enough, before you ease off and don't go with the expectation you won't make sales. As soon as I give you new ones, you have that energy.
0: Going back to that one-person company and the idea of, you know, micromanaging and realizing that the scale is to let go of control, it's, it's such an interesting thing because, you know, I, I speak to a lot of leaders, And what I've noticed is that letting go of control is one of the hardest things that really successful entrepreneurs have had to go through. And I see patterns of behavior, like I could tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the probability that a successful entrepreneur has existential anxiety, fear of flying, doesn't like being in the passenger seat of a a car, all those things are just inherently true. Not always true, but the probability is much higher than the general population. What are the actual things that you did on a day to day basis to get yourself over that need of control? Because it is a very challenging thing. Like, conceptually, I know you're right. Like, in
1: practice, it's not easy. It's not easy. So, one of the tricks is to grow, it's not about what new things you do, it's what about what things you stop doing. So, at some point, I stopped being our sales rep. On purpose. So I had a relationship with you. You would call and say, oh, do you have this freezer in stock? And I'd say, oh, let me check here. I'd look it up and say, oh, yeah, we've got seven of them in stock in this warehouse, blah, 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 blah. At one point, I knew how to use the system. I knew how to find everything. You would call. I would say, I'm sorry, I don't know. Let me transfer you to Bill who can help you. And after I've done that a few times, you start relying more on Bill. Otherwise, I become and end up doing all that. So it's what do you give up and giving things up is the toughest thing because partly we do them because we like doing them. We do them because we're confident at it. We do it because we've always done it. But if we keep doing what we've always done, we can't scale. And so I spent a lot of time of what should I not do? And it's tough because I always liked uh, going through all the uh, inventory numbers down to the skew level to figure out what's I like doing it. And all of a sudden, I'm not doing that. But then I talk to the person who does it and get them to explain to me where the issues are and whatnot. That's a better way of doing it to scale. Otherwise, I'm going to be the one that looks through all the inventory and finds out what's not selling. And then I'm going to do all the marketing. Oh, by the way, then I'll do all the sales of them. Oh, and then I may as well go into the warehouse and pick them all and ship them. And I'll go do all the deliveries. But you know how much you can do in that. You can't do much, right?
0: One of the things I think about a lot is, you know, you've become successful in your career, obviously, and there are others that have
1: as well. And,
0: you know, like you said, you had to paint houses to probably get some money to buy whatever you wanted as a kid to buy that first computer or the first two computers. How do you hack that lack of into your children or or how does one do that with their children? You know, growing up in a successful household,
1: is that something you think about at all? I think about that a lot, and there's a book called Adversity Quotient, and the theory is you've got IQ, which is intelligence, and EQ, which is emotional uh, quotient, and AQ is adversity quotient, and adversity quotient, I believe, is part of what makes you successful, and as successful people, we often think we love our children, we're going to give them everything. And I'm a member of a group called YPO and what I've seen in many of the YPO or Young Presidents Organization, you'll think I'm too old for that, but they don't kick you out if you've been in, they they let you stay in. Many of these people are very wealthy and I see them giving a lot to their children and I could never hire their children. Because they haven't had enough adversity and they don't know how to, you know, they know they're fine wine. They don't know how to not drink wine with their dinner because they didn't have enough money. And so that adversity, I believe, makes you stronger. So as a a parent, I would say I'm reasonably frugal with my children and I expect them to work for a living. Some people say, oh, am I going to give my business to my children? And I uh, respect a lot of people want to do that. I've always said to my children, if you want a business, no problem, go start your own. Just because I have a business doesn't mean you, and, and it would be demotivational for my managers if I said, oh, by the way, uh, the way to get ahead in this family is to, or this uh, company is to have Estel as your last name. That's not necessarily inspirational. That's just who I am. And I give my kids a lot less than other people do. Did you learn that from your parents? I may have learned that from my parents partly, but partly that's because my parents, of course, were depression era or depression era echo. So their parents were living right in the depression. They were very young during the depression. And so they, there was a, uh, a feeling of scarcity. And I guess to some extent, my parents didn't have as much wealth. So it's a little bit of a different situation, if you know what I mean. But they certainly, uh, and my father said from a very young age, oh, do you want to go to university? No problem. You better save your money because that's the way you go to university. You, you save your money. That's how you afford to go to university. That's why I went to co-op, University of Waterloo. Why? Because you're, it's ingrained in you. How do you pay your way through university? Well, go to school four months, work four months, pay your own way. And it's very healthy, I think.
0: I hadn't heard of this idea of AQ. I'm going to use that. Obviously, I think you would believe that AQ, IQ, EQ, EQ, Are all important. Are there any of those that matter more, or is it about a balance, or is it
1: about can you be so strong in one that you can make up for others? I think you need to be strong in all three, except I think IQ is overrated generally, unless you happen to be in a business where you are doing rocket science. I am not in businesses where you do rocket science. I can actually do well with an average IQ, I think. EQ is absolutely critical if you're going to scale a business because EQ is about how you come across to other people, how other people, you know, how you manage and lead people is a lot about EQ. And AQ is what keeps you from being stopped when you run into problems and what allows you to start against a daunting problem, against a big problem. I mean, you, you know about Shipperbee. B is a uh, courier company, shipping parcels. You're going to say, oh, you're going to start, start a courier business when FedEx and UPS have been around for a hundred years. And you're, how are you going to compete in that? Well, it's daunting but doable, and the beauty is you don't actually even have the history of a UPS or a FedEx, so you don't have the same restraints on constraints on you that they have. So they can't do things dramatically differently. It's like, is the biggest buggy manufacturer? Or are they the best? Become the best car manufacturer? I'm not sure they are.
0: Why did you buy Danby? You were successful by that point. You know why? Why jump right back into something like? Could you just not help yourself, or or was it more than that?
1: Well, largely, I could not help myself. Part of it is I like running a business. I like running a business on a certain size. So when I came back to Guelph, because my father was sick, I did start a retirement business, which was a small digital marketing agency. And I deliberately rented a small office. I thought I'll keep it small. It was walking distance from home, you know, 20 employees, keep it small. But I learned that I liked Operating a bigger business because I hate to, to say, it, but because you actually end up doing less because more people do everything for you when you're in a bigger business. So I like the size and the scale of Danby, and I like that Danby is a platform that is very difficult to do things on if you can't launch from a Danby type platform. So we introduced Parcel Guard, which is a smart parcel mailbox. You get your Amazon delivery. They send you an email or a text to say five pound parcel. You can look on the IP camera. If I was doing a a small garage startup, how can you make something that's big and bulky and and whatnot? Where Danby, I mean, we sell 2 million appliances a year. We ship 10,000 containers a year. What's another 50 containers of a uh, product? It's nothing, right? It's, it's easy for us to operate on a scale. We've got a million square feet. How do you um, do something? That was a thought pattern around Danby. Who is Danby? Danby makes appliances. And then we think, then I'm sitting in the factory thinking, no, who is Danby? Danby makes big boxes. Oh, what's a big box? A big box to receive your Amazon shipments or whatever. Oh, okay. And we have competitive advantage around big boxes. We've got material handling, we've got the warehouses, we've got the space, the size. We know how to distribute it and and we sell to uh, Costco and Home Depot and uh, all Target and all the uh, nationals. That's the type of place that a parcel mailbox would be sold. So it's changing who we are. I will say within Danby, some people raise their eyebrows and say, wait a minute, that doesn't have a compressor in it. We don't don't make things that don't have compressors. And uh, to some extent, they're even worried about their expertise. What do you mean? I've got 30 years experience with compressors and I don't see any compressor.
0: One of the things that I've noticed just a couple of conversations that we've had is that you have a genuine desire to help. I mean, I know one of the things that you've done recently is, uh, you know, put your hand up when ventilators needed to be manufactured with some partners of yours. You've mentioned along these conversations, you've kind of jumped into businesses where there was an actual need. There are businesses where people start just for the sake of starting a business and being a capitalist. How important is the why you do things? To steal that from kind of the Simon Sinek uh, side of it, how important is that why for you? And is the desire
1: to help a big part of that why? So what I want to do sounds arrogant, but I want to save the world. So, but to save the world, the best thing for me to do is to do business because I'm good at it and I enjoy it. And so that's my way of saving the world. Because inherently, you could say, you know, wine coolers—what good are they in the world? That's not doing a good or refrigerators or freezers. It, it doesn't do as much good in the world. But if I sell an extra 10,000 freezers, that gives me resources to be able to sponsor a bunch of refugees to to save the world in one way or the other. The ventilator project was partly because you read in the newspaper that there's a shortage of ventilators. You read what's happening in Italy. People are going to die in the halls without a ventilator. So I'm an impatient entrepreneur. Well, what can I do? Oh, well, let's assemble ventilators, which as, as I got into looking at it, oh, wait a minute, I can't do it on my own. I need partners. So I got ABS friction and Bayless Medical and JMP Solutions and Crystal Fountain to to work in a partnership on that. And it also serves a, another good, and that is it keeps the Danby people employed. Because as an entrepreneur, business owner, I feel a responsibility to my staff. What can I do to, to keep them through a potential bump that is happening, which we're all experiencing a bump with uh, almost regardless of what business you're in because of the economy and uh, COVID
0: this is great time to switch gears to philanthropy this is a this is a, a weird question and i'm hoping i get a, a a different answer but why is philanthropy important to you i mean outside of the obvious helping people like what is it that has drawn you to philanthropy for as long as you have been and as aggressively as you you know you spend your time in that area
1: i don't honestly know i it could be empathy i actually feel for people I try to help them help themselves. Maybe I can feel, I overfeel how others must feel if they're in a war-torn country, or I overfeel for how someone must feel if they're homeless. And so what are the little things I can do? I feel for people who are dying in gurneys in the, or have loved ones they're dying, dying in the hospital because of lack of a piece of medical equipment that could save them. So I think it's empathy.
0: How do you pick and choose? I mean, there's so many things I want to get involved in, and this is something that I've struggled with personally, so I'm looking for personal advice, and on this one is how do you pick and choose those things that you're passionate about, and that you want to get actively involved in? Because I think that spreading yourself too thin in any area, including philanthropy, is dangerous because then you accomplish nothing?
1: Well, first thing I'll say is doing anything is good, and sometimes people who want to do something good spend all their time doing analysis paralysis and finding some bad in helping because, you know, every organization, you could argue that the food bank has, oh, wait a minute. Some of the executive directors are paid too much. Maybe the food's distributed to people who are lazy, whatever, whatever. You can always find little reasons why some things aren't perfect. And we're always going to deal in an imperfect world. I tend to choose things that I am uniquely competent to do that others I don't feel are doing as fast or as well. I mean, making ventilators, I, I just didn't see anybody doing it. Like, step up and do it at a technology company pace. It was something I could do. The reason I'm so well known for the Syrian Refugee Project is it's not just about the money. Lots of people who can write checks. But... It's about the process. Who's going to meet them at the airport? Who's going to set up their apartment? Who's going to get them tested for English? Who's going to register the kids in school? Who's going to you know, set up the bank accounts? Who's going to set up the apartments? Who's going to get the bus pass? Who's going to ride the bus? It's all those little things, which as a business person, I knew how to organize or thought I knew how to organize. And so I set up a process to get it done. I will also say that some of the, many of the things I do, I don't need to do. It is just a financial donation. So when you're putting a if you're helping hospice or something. I mean, mostly they just need a check. They don't need me to go and do anything per se, but I ne- never question someone else's philanthropy. So if your choice is to do something for something that I don't do, we need to all do our own little piece and whatever you're doing, you're helping because I've had that people say, oh, why didn't you give more to heart and stroke? And, you know, wait a minute, Cancer Society is more important than heart and stroke. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, what about these poor little animals, Humane Society? I mean, like there's all of these things crying out for uh, and have need. I tend to donate to base needs, not as much to um, the arts. I give some money to the symphony and uh, stuff, but I don't, they are not primary benefactor at all, at all.
0: And the lessons you learn from philanthropy, like you mentioned, uh, empathy as being one of them. I would assume that that that, that has a, a positive kind of symbiotic relationship with your capitalistic side. I would assume that there are lessons you learn from the capitalist side of you and the philanthropic side of you that have played
1: well together. The one lesson that I've learned is bigger than all of it. And that is from my Syrian refugee project, I learned the secret to happiness. And the secret to happiness is being grateful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you've lost, and not ungrateful for what other people have. And if we think about anyone who's listening to this has a lot to be grateful for, and gratitude is tied to happiness. And the more you can be grateful, the more you will be happy. And the more grateful you are, the more things you will find to be grateful. So I learned gratitude. That was an unintended learning when you're talking to people who had really, really hard lives, and yet they're grateful. Then you sit back and say, wow, you're grateful. And at the same time, I, I brought in some people that were not as grateful because they lost things. It's not not being ungrateful for what you lost or not as grateful because, hey, wait a minute, someone else has it better off than I do.
0: That's really powerful, Jim. I really like that. I mean, you know, for me, in my own life, the idea of purpose is something I think about all the time and it doesn't matter what my views are on religion and spirituality. I think that the one thing that all of us can agree on is that one of the points of life is to maximize happiness, not only for yourself, but those around you. Just maximize kind of net happiness. I think those are really powerful things to think about is, is A, be grateful for the things you have and help others, you know, realize the necessity to be grateful for things that they have. So that one's going to stick with me, Jim. I like that. I want to go back to, to Danby for a second. You know, what's your goal there? I mean, obviously you, you, you bought the business because you, know, you said you love operating, but you did mention earlier, because I have a pretty good memory that Danby was a platform for you. What does that mean exactly? What's the end goal with Danby?
1: Well, when you're in business, often goals are stated in financial terms. I'd like to grow Danby to be a billion-dollar company because I don't want people, I don't want your listeners to say, gee, that Jim Estill, he's a one-shot wonder. That's the financial goal. I will say there's obviously a little speed bump we hit with this little uh, pandemic happening, but that's okay because the pandemic is also an entrepreneur's dream. The world changes. When there's change, entrepreneurs thrive. Entrepreneurs find what those changes are and capitalize on those changes. So that's my goal. And and for us to get there, we will need a little bit of diversify for diversification. We will need to uh, add new product areas and add new geographies and uh, and whatnot. So that's my plan.
0: Seeing the other successes you've had in your career, I I, I will not be betting against you. Let's put it that way.
1: Uh, thank you.
0: So so Jim, before I let you go, there's going to be younger and more mature entrepreneurs listening i'm sure putting up their hands wanting to ask a question so for them i'll ask a question and it's a more generic question and it's you know i want to be successful i want to live a life of purpose what are the three things that you could tell me that are important for me to know as i embark on my journey or that i'm in my journey but i want to get better and i want to always I- improve myself what are those three lessons that you'd like to impart on these uh, on these entrepreneurs
1: Well, the first thing I'd suggest is uh, spend a lot of time understanding your values. And if you do something within your values, you will do it well. If you do anything that's outside of your values, then you will be conflicted and stressed. So know your values. The second thing is life is about habits. Habits are the great multiplier. If you have good success habits over time, they will multiply and get you what you want. And I guess the third thing would be set goals. And you're better off to set goals and, and miss a little bit than to not set goals. And then read about goal setting. I mean, goal setting is, you know, break down the big goals into smaller goals, make them achievable goals, make them measured. Like, uh, it's it's great. We want to be a billion dollar company. Well, that's actually not a good goal. It needs to be a billion dollar company by X date. That, that becomes more a measure. And, and to be a billion dollar company, you don't just sort of chug along for nine years and then 10th year you static up to your billion dollars, it's okay, we're going to chunk it backwards. That means we're going to close four new accounts, and we're going to add these new products, and we're going to, you know, chunk along this, this and there, this and that, right?
0: The idea of measuring your goals is one that I think is easily understood, not well uh, executed, but easily understood. How do you personally measure how you're performing on the habit side as well as the values side. Do you write like specific things down in those two areas?
1: So I do on both of them. So on my uh, values, yes, I, I spend time and I write down my values and I revisit my values. And if you go online, there's tons of values, clarification exercises, easy to do, spend time on it. Habits, same thing. With me, a habit, once it's a habit, I actually take it off of my habit list and it just keeps going. And then if I notice, hey, wait a minute, I dropped that off. One thing I do on my habits, if I don't spend an hour a week on something, it can't be very important. I have to take it off of my list. So off my goal list. If it's if it's not worth spending an hour a week on, then take it off. Daniel Pink says that willpower is limited and habits take willpower off the table. So if you have a habit, it just happens. Like, I'm sure that nobody takes any willpower to brush their teeth. It's a habit. You go to bed without brushing your teeth, you get up and brush your teeth because it feels bad. It's just the habit. So habits take no willpower. And so people that think I'm highly disciplined, I'm not disciplined. I have good habits.
0: Great point. I mean, even to your, uh, your idea of exercising. For you, exercising is not as hard as someone else because it's a habit.
1: Exactly. And a lot of the, the habit, the exercise habit I do is not the workout. It's things like the Fitbit. I do my 10,000 steps. It's, it's just the habit. I'm gonna do it. And I actually put on my on my little sheet how many steps I'm gonna have by two o'clock and three o'clock and four o'clock. It's just my habit. I actually play a game with myself. See, oh, am I gonna get there by two or not? Oh, gee, I better get up and take a little stroll.
0: Well, Jim, thank you so much. I really, really appreciated you uh, joining us. And I'm gonna take quite a few things from uh, from this discussion. Uh, for those who, who, who want to continue to follow you, I mean, I know that they could find you on LinkedIn. I know you're active on LinkedIn. What other platforms uh, are there that they could follow you?
1: Well, I have a blog at www.jimestel.com. The company, danb.com, is public. I always say if anybody wants to get a hold of me, if, they, if they're if they not smart enough to use Google, then they probably don't deserve to get a hold of me and my names and emails out there. So, uh, But I'm active on LinkedIn mostly. Jim, again,
0: thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Look forward to uh, to seeing your uh, future success, which inevitably I know uh, you will have. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.